Welcome to How My Country Works with your host, Stephen O'Shea. Next up, located in South America, with the capital Brasilia, a population of 214 million, and functioning as a presidential democracy, is Brazil. Whilst Jair Bolsonaro remains the president of Brazil, he is often seen as a very divisive figure, with many people loving or hating him. The most popular politician in the country is actually one that was only recently released from prison. Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, or Lula, as he's more commonly known, is a former union leader and former president of the country from 2003 to 2010. However, he is also a former inmate of the Brazilian prison system after being found guilty of corruption charges in 2018. These have now been overturned though, and many now expect a political return for Lula, who looks set to challenge Bolsonaro at the next election, setting up a major political bust-up between right and left of Brazilian politics, and two very divisive figures. In order to dive a little bit deeper into this, and the historical and political climate of Brazil, I'm joined on the show by Professor Alfredo Sardfilo, who is Head of International Development at King's College London and a Brazilian native. Alfredo, thanks for joining me today. Nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. And we might just dive straight in. I was hoping you could just tell us a bit about the history of Brazil and how this huge country actually came to be. Brazil was um, discovered or occupied by uh, the Portuguese in the year 1500. For some time before that, the Portuguese had been expanding their uh, maritime travels uh, for trade reasons and also to build an, an, an empire uh, overseas. Yeah, right. And that's why Brazilians speak Portuguese to this day. But why did they even end up in Brazil? Portugal, of course, is squashed against the Atlantic Ocean by the entirety of the Eurasian mass. And several decades before, they started very gradually moving out. Uh, occupying islands uh, in the Atlantic Ocean and then discovered that they could produce sugar efficiently there to the extent that it became a massive uh, revenue-generating crop. And in association with that, travels that took them uh, to the coast of Africa and then around Africa and towards India, again for trade reasons and and then increasingly to capture uh, slaves. Interesting. We actually touched upon a previous Portuguese colony in our episode on Angola. But when did they get over to South America? It is said that Brazil was discovered by the Portuguese by chance. Uh, an expedition uh, was blown off course uh, and ended up in the coast of Brazil. It is also said that they had a pretty good idea that there was something in that direction and went there deliberately, navigating towards uh, that then unknown uh, continent. I don't know which um, is the case. But the fact is that they arrive on the coast of Brazil in 1500 and very slowly uh, start occupying areas uh, around the coast. And in doing this, both uh, first attempting to enslave uh, the uh, indigenous population, And then when that failed, because there was resistance, because the native population fled uh, or uh, absolutely refused to be enslaved, then over the decades, uh, increasingly producing sugar using African uh, enslaved uh, labor. Right. So they end up in South America in the 1500s and slowly start expanding across the continent, setting up plantations and using enslaved labor from countries like Angola. And this starts to generate huge revenues for the Portuguese empire. 
which they actually need as they're competing against other European countries for dominance at this time, notably Spain, right? Both Portugal and Spain were rival uh, expanding empires towards the, uh, towards the Atlantic. And for a time, they had a joint crown. At all the times, they were rival powers. Uh, they signed a treaty that divided the lands towards uh, the west. It was called the Treaty of Tordesillas, uh, divided the, those lands between Spain and Portugal, and that deal was sanctioned by the Pope uh, in Rome. To the great annoyance of the uh, English, the French, uh, and anybody else who had desires to expand in the direction uh, of the West and the New Continent uh, as well. Interesting. So instead of Spain and Portugal competing with each other over South America, they end up simply carving up the continent between them, which is why Brazil speaks Portuguese and the rest of the continent speaks Spanish. And I guess that's why the English and French end up focusing on North America. That seems like a pretty good deal for Spain, no? So Spain gained uh, the, the bulk of the territory. Portugal gained the territory that was closest uh, to Europe and perhaps easier to get uh, to. Right. That makes sense. And how is it that Brazil remained so large, but the Spanish Empire in South America fragmented so much and into so many different countries? Brazil maintained its unity. So today it's the only Portuguese-speaking country uh, in the Americas. It's also the, the largest one um, in, 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 in Latin America. And that was a triumph of Portuguese uh, statecraft and then Brazilian uh, statecraft to maintain national unity while that was not possible on, the, uh, on, on what was uh, previously the Spanish side. How interesting. So what eventually leads to the end of the Portuguese Empire and the independence of Brazil? Given some of the other countries we've looked at in this podcast, I'm going to guess that it has something to do with Napoleon. Well, Napoleon um, is largely responsible for that. Um, Napoleon Bonaparte uh, invaded the Iberian Peninsula in 1808, uh, and he pushed, well, occupied uh, Spain and demolished the Spanish state, which is uh, what triggers the movements towards independence in the Americas. The colonizing power simply ceased to exist uh, for a time, and Portugal acted in a different way. The, the, the Portuguese court simply fled. They fled to Brazil. So Brazil became the center of the Portuguese uh, empire and Rio de Janeiro, which was the capital of Brazil at that time, became the imperial uh, court, the seat of the imperial court. Wow, that's crazy. So basically the former colony becomes the new seat of Portuguese power and I guess also explains how the country remained whole. But this only lasts a few years, right? Uh, but eventually the king uh, returned to Portugal, left his uh, son uh, behind to rule over uh, Brazil and the son in clear agreement with the, uh, with the with the crown in Portugal proclaimed the independence of Brazil in 1822 so and then became the emperor of Brazil. Brazil was the only empire uh, in the Americas. Interesting. So how does the country fare after independence? So Brazil has not seen a significant civil war. Brazil has not seen a notable revolution. It has been remarkably stable politically, amongst all the localized instabilities, it has maintained a core of continuity of elite rule uh, over time. And the process of independence is part of this, uh, of this pattern. So it's comparatively stable versus much of South America, but it still has a relatively rocky 20th century though, as it suffers from multiple coups, right? So there were many sources of stress uh, in the country. In the case of the 20th century, the first source of stress was the shift away from 
an agricultural economy led by coffee in particular, but also uh, in the case of the northeast uh, of the country, uh, sugar still and then cotton. And in the shift away from those uh, sources of, of, of wealth towards uh, manufacturing uh, industry. And then the uh, abolition of slavery uh, as the background to uh, those processes. And that generated significant rivalries uh, and a transfer of economic power towards uh, an industrial elite located in the southeast uh, of, uh, of Brazil. Yeah, of course. And this leads to these military interventions. The uh, military intervention, you're, you're, you're correct, is, is a, a cyclical process in, across Brazilian history. The military have their own uh, modernizing uh, ideology. They are closely connected to the urban middle classes, but also to the agrarian groups that uh, control uh, land uh, in the country. The military act as a stable, what they consider to be a stabilizing power, meaning a conservative power uh, in Brazilian politics, uh, intervening whenever it seems that there are sources of instability that could bring the elite pact under a terminal process of in destabilization, or when significant sections of the elite uh, drift towards alliances with uh, popular classes. Right. So the military kind of steps in when it perceives that the country might be moving in a politically unstable direction. But in doing so, it kind of causes the political instability. And this has led to coups and the imposition of military rule in 1945 and 1964. So the military, it seems, has quite an outsized presence in Brazilian politics. And even the current president, Jair Bolsonaro, is a former army captain. But before we get onto him, I just want to touch on Lula, who we started discussing in the introduction. Can you tell us a little bit more about him, Alfredo? Lula is the most important political leader in Brazilian history, I believe. Whoa, why so? There are other significant political leaders. I think Lula is the most important one. And his personal trajectory is itself very interesting. So he comes from a very poor family that migrated from the northeast of Brazil, like many millions, uh, towards the southeast. Uh, people leaving poorer regions in search of economic sustenance and going towards uh, richer uh, areas of the country. Yeah, right. He starts working uh, in factories uh, in and around uh, Sao Paulo uh, city, the most important manufacturing center in Brazil, and becomes a trade union leader. Uh, in the uh, mid-1970s. And that is part of a new wave of trade unionism, much more, much less accommodating, much more rebellious, much less uh, willing to compromise with the military dictatorship that had been ruling Brazil since 1964. Those new trade unions, they are concentrated in uh, the durable consumer goods and the transnational uh, companies producing consumer goods in Brazil, companies that had been in the country since the 1950s, sometimes the 1960s, with the centre being the automobile uh, industry. Yeah, of course, because the country has had quite a significant manufacturing base for decades now. But how does Lula use this to rise to the presidency? Lula leads the Metal Workers Union, uh, and from a succession of strikes, some successful, some less uh, successful, uh, in that moment, in the mid to late 1970s, of democratic ferment in the country, large movements emerging against the military dictatorship, the working class movement emerges too, 
and Lula becomes rapidly the most prominent figure in that wing of the democratic movement, in the labor uh, wing of that movement. Right. Interesting. And through alliances between that wing of the movement with intellectuals, with very small illegal left-wing political parties and the uh, liberation theology wing of the Catholic Church, they get together at the end of the 1970s and decide to form a political party that they call the Workers' Party. And that is genuinely a novelty party organized under very different principles from traditional social democracy or from the traditional communist parties, a party that uh, is genuinely uh, open, uh, but at the same time that has a radical aura uh, attached uh, to it. And Lula is the uncontested uh, leader of that party, continues to be uh, many, many years uh, later. He surfs the waves of the uh, re-democratization of Brazil in the 1980s, and is a candidate for the Brazilian presidency in the first presidential elections after the uh, turn to democracy or the return of democracy in 1989. He comes very, very close uh, to winning with a distinctly left-wing platform uh, and then tries uh, twice more and is defeated both times. And then uh, in the early 2000s, Uh, the Workers' Party and Lula and the circle around him decide that they are going to win next time. And the way to win was to moderate their political program, to move towards the political center, which they do, and they are successful. And Lula um, runs two administrations each uh, of four years. He's re-elected, and he's increasingly successful as uh, president of Brazil. Right. So he's finally elected president at the fourth time of trying in the early 2000s. But then what leads to his successful time as president? Now, that's partly because of his merits, unquestionable merit as a, a political leader uh, as a, and as someone who can bring people together, who can establish dialogue. He's a negotiator by nature and extremely successful uh, at that. But also Lula benefits from the global commodity boom that starts in the early 2000s. And Brazil is one of the most important commodity exporters uh, in the world. And the country gains mightily from the global commodity boom. And Lula uses the proceeds from the commodity boom to distribute income uh, and to create jobs uh, in Brazil. Okay, so he uses his political nuance and the global commodity boom, which leaves him flush with cash, to redistribute some of the country's wealth. But what brings his presidency to an end? So he finishes his second administration in 2010 as the most successful political leader in Brazilian history with a popular approval rate between 80 and 90%. That's absolutely unheard of in Brazil. But things start going wrong after that. Lula's successor, Dilma Rousseff, uh, is accused uh, of malfeasance uh, and she's impeached. Uh, Lula is accused of corruption Uh, and he is put in jail for about a year and a half. Uh, All those charges were false. Uh, That was a politically motivated persecution. He has now been freed. The causes, the the judicial cases have been quashed. Uh, And he is the most, again, the most popular politician uh, in Brazil. Wow, what an incredible turn of events. And what now for him, given his newly found freedom? Will he compete against Bolsonaro for the presidency? Bolsonaro has been partly responsible for the absolute disaster of the COVID-19 pandemic in Brazil that has now exceeded 600,000 deaths. 
Uh, and it is very good that there is a political leader who can uh, face Bolsonaro and perhaps defeat him uh, in the uh, elections if we get that far. It is also a misfortune in the sense that uh, the Brazilian left in particular has no other plausible political leader. There is nobody else. Uh, and this is certainly not a situation that you want uh, a democratic country uh, to be in. Yeah, absolutely. They seem like such divergent candidates. It's a very heavily polarized uh, country. Uh, and uh, polarized, in the case of Bolsonaro, polarized around all that exists that is negative in Brazilian politics and Brazilian culture. And in the case of Lula, someone who is a conciliator, someone who's a negotiator, someone who is a social democratic political uh, leader, but who is still, even though he's very popular, he's still dangerously isolated from the uh, elites in the country, uh, dangerously isolated from organized social movements that have not been able to emerge in support of his uh, potential candidacy, uh, isolated uh, in many ways from the outside world uh, as well. Yeah, of course. And this is tricky in a country the size of Brazil with its different state entities and the huge economic devastation caused by the pandemic. Well, I think that brings us right up to date with the politics of the country. But just moving away from politics for a moment, could you talk to us a bit about a unique festival, event or celebration in Brazil? I think I know what you're going to talk about, but I'm still keen for your thoughts. Well, Brazilians will inevitably point out to Carnival. This is a, 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 a celebration that, for which Brazil is famous uh, internationally. Carnival is celebrated in different ways in different regions of Brazil. It's the, the Carnival in Rio de Janeiro is very famous internationally. You have organized uh, what they call schools of samba that compete in Avenue, big um, area uh, in the center of Rio. They compete every year with different songs and different dresses and disguises and dances, and it is a mass party. In other parts of the country, it's much more of a street party where hundreds of thousands of people uh, participate uh, and, and, and celebrate. Uh, and that is, of course, associated with different styles of music uh, as well, depending on the region uh, in the country. But it's, a, it's, a, it's a popular uh, party. It's also a moment of transgression. It's a moment, carnival is a moment when the rules are reversed traditionally uh, and the poor pretend to be rich, the rich pretend to be poor, men pretend to be women, women pretend to be men, etc., etc. So it's, it's, it's a moment uh, traditionally, and has been like this for many decades, uh, a moment of reversal and an upending of, of the established rules. And then everything goes back to normal uh, on, um, on Wednesday, on Ash Wednesday. So traditionally, Carnival has been the celebration that's most closely associated with the image of Brazil, uh, especially abroad, but in, within the country uh, as well. Yeah, wow. It sounds incredible. And I think that anyone who has ever seen the images from it would think it looks amazing as well. Thanks so much for chatting to us about Carnival, Alfredo, and for everything else as well. That's absolutely fine. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end the show. Thanks so much to my guest, Alfredo Sardvilo. Join us next time where we'll be exploring the Asian nation of Brunei, which actually has one of the highest living standards in the world, despite also remaining one of the few absolute monarchies. 
As always, please do rate us on your podcast app and recommend us to any friends that have a hankering for political knowledge. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter at HowMyCountryWorks for extra insights and facts. And there you can message us around anything else you'd like to know about Brazil or any other country. This podcast is produced by Stephen O'Shea and sound editing is by Lucy Best. See you next time and remember to keep asking how my country works.